Ladies, folks, and gentlemen, the Doom Train players proudly present H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time. After 22 years of nightmare and terror, saved only by a desperate conviction of the mythical source of certain impressions, I am unwilling to vouch for the truth that of which I think I found in Western Australia on the night of July the 17th through the 18th, 1935. There is a reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly a hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes existed, and yet... Its realism was so hideous that I sometimes find hope impossible. If the thing did happen, then man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos and of his own place in the seething vortex of time whose merest mention is paralyzing. He must, too, be placed on guard against a specific lurking peril which, though it will never engulf the whole race, may impose monstrous and unguessable horrors upon certain venturesome members of it. It is for this latter reason that I urge, with all the force of my being, a final abandonment of all attempts at unearthing those fragments of unknown primordial masonry which my expedition set out to investigate. Assuming that I was sane and awake, my experience on that night was such as has befallen no man before, it was, moreover, a frightful confirmation of all I had sought to dismiss as myth and dream. Mercifully, there was no proof, for, in my fright, I lost the awesome object which would, if real and brought out of that noxious abyss, have formed irrefutable evidence. When I came upon the horror, I was alone, and I have, up to now, told no one about it. I could not stop the others from digging in its direction, but chance and the shifting sand have so far saved them from finding it. Now I must formulate some definitive statement, not only for the sake of my own mental balance, but to warn such others as may read it seriously. These pages, much in whose earlier parts will be familiar to close readers of general and scientific press, are written in the cabin of the ship that is bringing me home. I shall give them to my son, Professor Wingate Peasley of Miskatonic University, the only member of my family who stuck to me after my queer amnesia of long ago, and the man best informed on the inner facts of my case. Of all living persons, he is likely to ridicule what I shall tell of that fateful night. I did not enlighten him orally before sailing, because I think he had better have the revelation in written form. Reading and rereading at leisure will leave him a more convincing picture than my confused tongue could hope to convey. He can do as he thinks best with this account, shewing it with suitable comment to any quarter where it will be likely to accomplish good. It is for the sake of such readers as are from unfamiliar with the earlier phases of my case that I am prefacing the revelation itself with a fairly ample summary of its background. My name is Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, and those who recall the newspaper tales of a generation back, or the letters and articles in psychological journals six or seven years ago, will know who and what I am. 
the press was filled with the details of my strange amnesia in 1908 to 1913, and much was made of the traditions of horror, madness, and witchcraft which lurked behind the ancient Massachusetts town then and now forming my place of residence. Yet I would have it known that there is nothing whatever of the mad or sinister in my hereditary and early life. This is a highly important fact in view of the shadow which fell so suddenly upon me from outside sources. It may be that centuries of dark brooding had given to crumbling, whisper-haunted Arkham a peculiar vulnerability as regards such shadows, though even this seems doubtful in the light of those other cases which I later came to study. But the chief point is that my own ancestry and background are altogether normal. What came came from somewhere else, where I even now hesitate to assert in plain words. I am the son of Jonathan and Hannah Wingate Peasley, both of wholesome old Haverville stock. I was born and reared in Haverville, at the old homestead in Boardman Street near Golden Hill, and did not go to Arkham till I entered Miskatonic University at the age of 18. That was in 1889. After my graduation, I studied economics at Harvard and came back to Miskatonic as instructor of political economy in 1895. I married Alice Keezer of Haverville in 1896, and my three children, Robert K., Wingate, and Hannah, were born in 1898, 1900, and 1903, respectively. In 1898, I became an associate professor, and in 1902, a full professor. At no time had I the least interest in either occultism or abnormal psychology. It was on Thursday, May 14th, 1908, that a queer amnesia came. The thing was quite sudden, though later I realized that certain brief, glimmering visions of several hours previous, chaotic visions which disturbed me greatly because they were so unprecedented, must have formed premonitory symptoms. My head was aching. I had a singular feeling, altogether new to me, that someone else was trying to get possession of my thoughts. The collapse occurred about 10.20 a.m. while I was conducting a class in Political Economy 4, History and Present Tendencies of Economics, for juniors and a few sophomores. I began to see strange shapes before my eyes, and to feel that I was in a grotesque room other than the classroom. My thoughts and speech wandered from my subject, and the students saw that something was gravely amiss. Then I slumped down, unconscious in my chair, in a stupor from which no one could arouse me, nor did my rightful faculties again look out upon the daylight of our normal world for five years, four months, and thirteen days. It is, of course, from others that I have learned what followed. I showed no sign of consciousness for sixteen and a half hours, though removed to my home at 27 Crane Street and given the best of medical attention. At 3 a.m. May 15th, my eyes opened and I began to speak, but before long the doctors and my family were thoroughly frightened by the trend of my expression and language. It was clear that I had no remembrance of my identity or my past, though for some reason, I seemed anxious to conceal this lack of knowledge. My eyes gazed strangely at the persons around me, and the flexions of my facial muscles were altogether unfamiliar. 
Even my speech seemed awkward and foreign. I used my vocal organs clumsily and gropingly, and my diction had a curiously stilted quality, as if I had laboriously learned the English language from books. The pronunciation was barbarously alien, whilst the idiom seemed to include both scraps of curious archaism and expressions of a wholly incomprehensible cast. Of the latter one in particular was very potently, even terrifiedly, recalled by the youngest of the physicians twenty years afterward. For at that late period, such a phrase began to have an actual currency, first in England and then in the United States. And though of much complexity and indisputable newness, it reproduced in every least particular the mystifying words of the strange Arkham patient of 1908. Physical strength returned at once, although I required an odd amount of re-education in the use of my hands, legs, and bodily apparatus in general. Because of this, and other handicaps inherent in the monomic lapse, I was for some time kept under strict medical care. When I saw that my attempts to conceal the lapse had failed, I admitted it openly, and became eager for information of all sorts. Indeed, it seemed to the doctors that I had lost interest in my proper personality as soon as I found the case of amnesia accepted as a natural thing. They noticed that my chief efforts were to master certain points in history, science, art, language, and folklore, some of them tremendously obtruse, and some childishly simple, which remained, very oddly in many cases, outside my consciousness. At the same time, they noticed that I had an inexplicable command of many almost unknown sorts of knowledge. A command which I seemed to wish to hide rather than display, I would inadvertently refer with casual assurance to specific events in dim ages outside the range of accepted history, passing off such references as a jest when I saw the surprise they created. And I had such a way of speaking of the future which two or three times caused actual fright. These uncanny flashes soon ceased to appear, though some observers laid their vanishment more to a certain furtive caution on my part than to any waning of the strange knowledge behind them. Indeed, I seemed anomalously avid to absorb the speech, customs, and perspectives of the age around me, as if I were a studious traveler from a far foreign land. As soon as permitted, I haunted the college library at all hours, and shortly began to arrange for those odd travels and special courses at American and European universities which evoked so much comment during the next few years. I did not at any time suffer from a lack of learned contacts, for my case I had a mild celebrity among the psychologists of the period. I was lectured upon as a typical example of secondary personality, even though I seemed to puzzle the lecturers now and then with some bizarre symptom of some queer trace of carefully veiled mockery. Of real friendliness, however, I encountered little. Something in my aspect and speech seemed to excite vague fears and aversions in everyone I met, as if I were a being infinitely removed from all that is normal and healthful. This idea of a black, hidden horror connected with incalculable gulfs of some sort of distance was 
oddly widespread and persistent. My own family formed no exception. From the moment of my strange waking, my wife had regarded me with extreme horror and loathing, vowing that I was some utter alien, usurping the body of her husband. In 1910, she obtained a legal divorce, nor would she ever consent to see me even after my return to normalcy in 1913. These feelings were shared by my elder son and my small daughter, neither of whom I have ever seen since. Only my second son, Wingate, seemed able to conquer the terror and repulsion which my change aroused. He indeed felt that I was a stranger, but, though only eight years old, held fast to a faith that my proper self would return. When it did return, he sought me out, and the courts gave me his custody. In succeeding years, he helped me with the studies to which I was driven, and today, at thirty-five, he is professor of psychology at Miskatonic but I do not wonder at the horror I caused. For certainly, the mind, voice, and facial expression of the being that awakened on May 15, 1908, were not those of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. I will not attempt to tell much of my life from 1908 to 1913, since readers may glean all the outward essentials, as I largely had to do, from files of old newspapers and scientific journals. I was given change of my funds and spent them slowly and on the whole wisely, in travel and in study at various centers of learning. My travels, however, were singular in the extreme, involving long visits to remote and desolate places. In 1909, I spent a month in the Himalayas, and in 1911, aroused much attention through a camel trip into the unknown deserts of Arabia. What happened on those journeys, I have never been able to learn. During the summer of 1912, I chartered a ship and sailed in the Arctic north of Spitsbergen, afterward shooing signs of disappointment. Later in that year, I spent weeks alone beyond the limits of previous or subsequent exploration in the vast limestone cavern system of western Virginia, black labyrinths so complex that no retracing of my steps could ever be considered. My sojourns at the university were marked by abnormally rapid assimilation, as if the secondary personality had an intelligence enormously superior to my own. I have found also that my rate of reading and solitary study was phenomenal. I could master every detail of a book merely by glancing over it as fast as I could turn the leaves. While my skill at interpreting complex figures in an instant was veritably awesome, at times, there appeared to almost ugly reports of my power to influence the thoughts and acts of others, though I seem to have taken care to minimize displays of this faculty. Other ugly reports concerned my intimacy with leaders of occultist groups and scholars suspected of connection with nameless bands of abhorrent Elder World Hierophants. These rumors, though never proved at the time, were doubtless stimulated by the known tenor of some of my reading, for the consultation of rare books at libraries cannot be affected secretly. There is tangible proof, in the form of marginal notes, that I went minuetly through such things as Comte d'Herlette's Cortes de Gouls, Ludwig Prinz der Vermes Mysteries, the Unpausus Flecken Colten of Von Jutz, 
the surviving fragments of the puzzling book of Abon and the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Al-Hazrad. Then, too, it is undeniable that a fresh and evil weave of underground cult activity set in about the time of my odd mutation. In the summer of 1913, I began to display signs of ennui and flagging interest, and to hint to various associates that a change might soon be expected in me. I spoke of returning memories of my earlier life, though most auditors judged me insincere, since all the recollections I gave were casual, and such as might have been learned from my old private papers. About the middle of August, I returned to Arkham and reopened my long-closed house in Crane Street. Here, I installed a mechanism of the most curious aspect, constructed piecemeal by different makers of scientific apparatus in Europe and America, and guarded carefully from the sight of anyone intelligent enough to analyze it, though who did see it, a workman, a servant, and the new housekeeper, say that it was a queer mixture of rods, wheels, and mirrors, though only about two feet tall, one foot wide, and one foot thick. The central mirror was circular and convex. All this is borne out by such makers of parts as can be located. On the evening of Friday, September the 26th, I dismissed the housekeeper and the maid till noon of the next day. Lights burned in the house till late, and a lean, dark, curiously foreign-looking man called in an automobile. It was about 1 a.m. that the lights were last seen. At 2.15 a.m., a policeman observed the place in darkness, but with the stranger's motor still at the curb. By 4 o'clock, the motor was certainly gone. It was at 6 that a hesitant, foreign voice on the telephone asked Dr. Wilson to call my house and bring me out of a peculiar faint. This call, a long-distance one, was later traced to a public booth in North Station in Boston, but no sign of the lean foreigner was ever unearthed. When the doctor reached my house, he found me unconscious in the sitting room, in an easy chair with a table drawn up before it. On the polished tabletop were scratchings showing where some heavy object had rested. The queer machine was gone, nor was anything afterward heard of it. Undoubtedly, the dark, lean foreigner had taken it away. In the library grate were abundant ashes, evidently left from the burning of every remaining scrap of paper on which I had written since the advent of the amnesia. Dr. Wilson found my breathing very peculiar, but, after a hypodermic injection, it became more regular. At 11.15 a.m., September 27th, I stirred vigorously, and my hitherto mask-like face began to show signs of expression. Dr. Wilson remarked that the expression was not that of my secondary personality, but seemed much like that of my normal self. About 11.30, I muttered some very curious syllables, syllables which seemed unrelated to any human speech. I appeared, too, to, to struggle against something. Then, just after noon, the housekeeper and the maid, having meanwhile returned, I began to mutter in English. Of the orthodox economists of that period, Jevons typifies the prevailing trend toward scientific correlation. His attempts to link the commercial cycle of prosperity and depression with the physical cycle of the solar spots forms perhaps the apex of... Nathaniel Wingate Peasley had come back a spirit 
in whose time scale it was still that Thursday morning in 1908, with the economics class gazing up at the battered desk, plaque.